pray that in the midst of that, you would speak to us through your word today. God, prepare us. Prepare us to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Help us to have a worshipful heart today as we open your word. Lord, we pray that in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our weariness, in the midst of our exhaustion, we just pray that you would minister to us today. Lord, help us to see your word clearly. Help us to grow in love with who you are. And help us, when we leave here, to leave here worshiping. Please help us, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. So on January 14th of 1878, Alexander Graham Bell had an opportunity to demonstrate his new invention, the telephone, to the Queen of England, Queen Victoria. Bell had actually invented the phone a few years prior and had been granted a patent in 1876. But in January of 1878, at the time of his demonstration, there was still a great deal of public skepticism regarding use of the telephone. But the Queen's response to the demonstration that day would go a long ways to begin to soften some of that skepticism. After seeing Bell demonstrate how the telephone works, the Queen was thoroughly impressed. Soon after the demonstration, one of the Queen's staff members wrote to Bell, informing him the Queen was, quote, much gratified and surprised by the exhibition of the telephone. In fact, she was so pleased by the demonstration of the phone that she inquired about purchasing some telephones from Bell. Bell ended up actually giving her a gift set of telephones, which turned out to be a genius piece of marketing, as the Queen's endorsement would pique the interest of many others who would then take an interest in the phone as well. To be sure, there are other factors that led to the widespread use of the telephone, in fact, some far more important than the Queen's endorsement. But the Queen's response certainly did not hurt Bell's cause. Her surprise and delight helped pique curiosity and interest among, amongst others. For the queen to see the telephone as useful was validation that the telephone could be something other people would use. And looking back, it's not hard to see why the queen saw the telephone or saw the invention of the telephone as a beneficial thing. As far as inventions go, the telephone was a game changer. But the challenge for us in hearing that story this morning is that because we're so familiar with the telephone, we now even have smartphones. I think we've forgotten what it must have been like to discover for the first time the ability to use the phone. In an 1877 flyer, one year before Bell's demonstration before the Queen, the telephone was described in this way, quote, persons using it can converse miles apart in precisely the same manner as though they were in the same room. Now, of course, we take that for granted. But for someone like the Queen, or for that matter, anyone else living in the 1870s, the idea that you could talk to someone else that was miles apart and do so in live time would have been absolutely paradigm shifting. And indeed, the invention of the excuse me, the invention of the telephone was indeed a paradigm shifting invention. But because we're so used to it, we tend to not think what it must have been like to hear someone's voice on the other end of the phone for the first time. No wonder the queen described her reaction as one of both surprise and gratitude. To be able to talk to someone who's in a different location than you, when you didn't even think that was possible, would have been an amazing thing. For those living in the 1870s, even into the 1880s, probably the 1890s, 1900s, the invention of the telephone was an astonishingly good development. Because of the telephone, you could talk to someone who's not in the same room as you. That's amazing. But since we're long past the invention of the telephone, we usually don't even give a second thought to its benefits, do we? But can you imagine living in a world where you couldn't call or text your son or daughter who is living off at college? Instead, you had to write them a letter. 
Or can you imagine not being able to call your parents and check in on them as they're dealing with some health issue? Or can you imagine having an emergency at your house and having no ability to call 911 or call someone else for help? We become so accustomed to the technology of the phone that not having access to any of those things seems unfathomable to us. We can't even imagine life without a phone. But oddly enough, despite our dependence on the phone, we usually take it for granted. Whereas the Queen of England responded to a demonstration of the telephone with surprise and gratitude, we rarely, suppress, or we rarely express surprise and gratitude ourselves. Instead, we just get frustrated if our phone drops a call. Or if we're in the middle of nowhere and can't get a good signal, this is irritating to us. We take for granted what those in the 1870s would have seen as amazing and incredible. That's kind of the way it works, isn't it? Over time, something that initially would have caused us to stir and wonder instead becomes commonplace. Whether it's the telephone or indoor plumbing or electricity or the internet or cars or planes or even relationships with loved ones, we tend to lose our wonder over time. That which once would have delighted us instead becomes routine. And therein actually lies the danger for us this morning. As we turn our attention to the Christmas story, I would argue that we become so familiar with this story, after all, we talk about it every year, that we no longer see it as amazing or incredible or breathtaking. Instead, we yawn, and in a twist of irony, we go back to looking at our phones. We forget how astonishing and amazing the incarnation of Jesus Christ is. Or perhaps to say it another way, using the language of our passage today, we forget that the news of Christ's birth is indeed good news. But our passage today reminds us of that reality. It reminds us that the birth of Christ is not just news. It is good news, great news even. And this morning, what I want to do is to help us remember that reality. I want us to remember, I want us to see why is the good news good news? The fact is, familiarity often breeds complacency and even apathy. It's true with telephones, and it's true with the Christmas story. But this morning, I hope and pray that God will help us to restore the wonder of this story. That in our minds, we'll begin to see why the Christmas story is indeed good news. Or remember why it's good news. And then live accordingly. So that said, I'm going to ask you to stand here if you're able. Luke 2, 8-14. to This is the third of four songs in Luke 1 and 2. This is a brief one. It's the angel song that we find in verse 14. There's obviously some content leading up to that in verses 8 through 13. So Luke 2, 8 to 14 is our passage this morning. Words will be on the screen. You can listen as I read or you can look along in your own Bibles. But the Word of God says this beginning in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now, of all the passages that are connected to the Christmas story, Luke 2, 8 to 14, is perhaps the best known, and probably for good reason. There's some incredible imagery in these verses. You have shepherds out in the field at night keeping watch over their flocks. 
You have the sudden appearance of an angel that produces great fear and presumably great awe. You have an announcement from this angel, and eventually you have the appearance of a host of angels, an army of angels singing and praising God. Not only is that incredible imagery, it's dramatic and it's memorable. You can picture it in your mind, what it must have been like to be one of those shepherds out in the flocks or out watching your flocks by night, and all of a sudden an angel of the Lord appears. And before long, after the angel announces something, now there's an army of angels. It's an incredible imagery. But it's not the imagery I want us to focus on this morning so much as it's the content of the angel's announcement that I want us to ponder. And specifically, I want us to think about this idea of good news. In verse 10, the angel tells the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I think the challenge we face this morning is that we're so familiar with this idea that Jesus took on flesh, that he came as a helpless baby. In other words, we're so familiar with the Christmas story that we've stopped seeing it as good news. Instead, we just see it as news. And so the question I want us to ponder this morning is simply this then. What makes the good news good news? Why is the birth of Christ not just news, but good news? Now, perhaps you hear that question this morning and you think, well, isn't it obvious? We know why it's good news. Jesus came to die for our sins. Do we really need to talk about that? And my answer to the question is yes. We do need to talk about this because of our tendency to take things for granted, because of our tendency to become complacent and apathetic, because of our tendency to lose wonder and awe. We desperately need to talk about why the good news is good news. And so again, this morning, my goal is simply to answer this question, why is the good news good news? And to do that, I want to point out three things that we learn about the news in this passage. So again, the question is, why is the good news good news? The first answer, I think, is this. The good news is good news because of the substance of the news. Now, the substance of the news is found in verse 11. For the sake of context, let's go back to verse 10 here. But verse 11 is what I want want us to focus on. Verse 10 says this. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And here comes the news, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So in verse 11, the content of the good news is clearly laid out. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The substance of the good news then is a person. In this case, a baby. A baby that is born in the city of David, that's Bethlehem. A baby who is Savior, Christ, and Lord. Now, of course, we know that the baby's name is Jesus. But the three titles given to the baby in verse 11 help us understand why Jesus is the substance of the good news. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is the Lord. Now, obviously, there are a lot of different ways that we could try to describe Jesus. In fact... At the end of the Gospel of John, John tells us in the last verse of that Gospel that where we try to record everything Jesus did, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, completely and exhaustively capturing the essence of who Jesus is is basically impossible. But if you're looking for a starting point to try to describe who is this Jesus and why is he the substance of the good news, the three titles of verse 11 are probably a good starting point. Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Christ, Jesus is Lord. In the Old Testament, the title Savior typically referred to one who would deliver from enemies. 
The title was most often applied to God in the Old Testament, as God would often deliver his people from their enemies or from some other calamity, and thus he would save them. Now here, that title is being applied to Jesus. And given the content of the rest of the New Testament, it's clear that when it applied to Jesus, the title of Savior is not just referencing one who delivers from human enemies, but also one who delivers from the enemy of sin. In Matthew chapter 1, when the angel announces the upcoming birth of Christ to Joseph, the angel informs Joseph that Jesus will save his people from their sins. In Galatians 1.4, Paul tells us Jesus gave himself for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age. So when we talk about Jesus being Savior, what we're talking about is that Jesus rescued his people from their sin and delivered them out of the domain of darkness. He saves us and rescues us, at least those of us who trusted in him, put our faith in him. He saves us and rescues us from the peril of our own sin and from the kingdom of this world. And listen, you cannot understand the Christmas story unless you understand that element of who Jesus is. He is the Savior. The storyline of Scripture on this is very clear. When sin entered the world in Genesis 3, nothing has been the same since. From that point forward, all of us, all of us have been in captivity to sin. Both by nature and by choice, we've rebelled against God, and thus we put ourselves in opposition to God. As such, we can be rightly described, as we are in Ephesians 2, as dead in our transgressions and sins. And we desperately needed one who could rescue us from this awful state. We needed a Savior. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we could not live, satisfying the righteous requirements of the law. And then he paid the punishment we deserve to pay, taking the eternal wrath of God on the cross. And in living the perfect life of obedience, and yet dying on the cross for our sin, Jesus demonstrated he is in fact Savior, the one who could rescue from our sin. So hear this, Jesus is not just a good teacher, he's not just a moral example. Both of those things may be true, but Jesus is more than that. He is Savior. He's the one who rescues from our sin. And what you need to understand this morning is that the title of Savior is not just something to be admired from afar. In the same way that we might admire a war general who set his people free in the past, we might say, oh, wasn't that great that the general did that? Now, that's not how we're to respond to Jesus' title of Savior. It's not something to be admired from afar, but rather something that's meant to be applied personally. In other words, what I'm saying is this. The point is not just to acknowledge that Jesus is a Savior. Oh, that's great. No, the point is to understand that you need a Savior, that your sin has separated you from God, and that you need rescued. Every person in this room, without exception, apart from Christ, has fallen short of the glory of God. And as such, we are at odds with God and subject to his righteous wrath. But as Matthew 1 reminds us, Jesus came to rescue his people from our sins. He came to rescue us only if we would turn to him in saving faith. The good news of the Christmas story then is not just that Jesus was born, but that he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and one day he will come again. And in doing all that, he proved himself to be Savior. Listen, the only way you can be rescued from your sin is through Jesus. He alone is Savior. But he's not just Savior. In verse 11, the angel also tells us that he's the Christ. Now, as we talked about last week, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Rather, it's a title. It comes from the Greek word Christos, meaning the anointed one. 
Jesus is the long-promised Messiah from the Old Testament, the prophesied one who'd rescued the people from their sin, the anointed one that the people longed for for centuries and centuries. All of the promises of the Old Testament regarding one who would come later to deliver from sin find their yes and their amen in Jesus. He's the promised snake crusher of Genesis 3. He's the descendant of Abraham of Genesis 22. He's the branch from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11. He's the king from the line of David in 2 Samuel 7. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah that's alluded to in Genesis 49. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the one who would set the captives free that was prophesied about in Isaiah 61. Or to say it more simply, he is the Christ. He's the anointed one. God's plan of salvation has always been Jesus. There is no plan B. Jesus has always been and always will be the only plan. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. But he's also the Lord, which is the third title the angel describes to Jesus in verse 11. So Jesus doesn't just rescue people from their sin, Savior. And he's not just the anointed one prophesied about in the Old Testament, the Christ. He's also the sovereign Lord. He's the king of the universe. He is God who reigns over all things and rules over all things. And therein lies the great paradox of the Christmas story. The one who created all things and is above all things took on human flesh. The king of the universe became a helpless baby. The one who knows each star by name was born in a manger. The sign of verse 12 that the angel gives to the shepherds, that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger is a startling sign in light of who that baby was. Now, for any baby to be born in a manger would be an incredible thing. But for that baby to be born in a manger, the Savior, Christ the Lord, it's astonishing. The sovereign king of the universe lying in a feeding trough for animals. That's crazy. I mean, think about it this way. If you were having a baby and you went to the hospital here in Fremont or in Omaha, and you discovered that the room you, they had put you in had not been clean since the last birth, you would probably be rightly appalled and angry. Why in the world would they expect that you would give birth in a dirty hospital room? And yet think about this. The king of the universe, the king of the universe was born in a feeding trough for animals. That is mind-blowing. And yet it's the Christmas story. The sovereign Lord of the universe humbled himself and took on flesh and was born in a manger. It's astonishing, and it's astonishing primarily because of who he was and who he is. He is Savior, Christ, and Lord. To understand the Christmas story, you have to understand all three of those titles. If Jesus was not Savior, we'd still be stuck in our sin. If Jesus was not the Christ, we would still be waiting for our deliverer. If Jesus was not Lord, his death on the cross would have been the end of the story. But in Jesus Christ, we find all three of those things to be true. He is Savior, Christ, and Lord. And that's part of what makes the good news the good news. It's the substance of the good news as a person. It's Jesus. And this Christmas, no doubt, some of you need to embrace that good news for the first time. You've never actually turned from your sin and trusted in Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting that you haven't gone to church before. Obviously, you have because you're here today. And I'm not saying that you're not religious. Maybe you're very religious. But what I'm saying is this. In a group this size, no doubt, there are many who've never actually trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. 
Now, maybe you would give lip service to the idea of trusting in Christ, and maybe you would even affirm, oh, I'm a Christian, but you've never actually come to the end of yourself. You've never actually recognized that you are a sinner who needs saved. And if that's you, I would plead with you this morning to turn to Jesus Christ in saving faith so that you might spend eternity with the King of the universe. And for those of us who've already done that in the past, I would just say this. We should be freshly amazed again this morning with the reality of who Jesus is and what he did. Jesus rescued us from our sin. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus, the King of the universe, took on flesh to rescue us. That is not a story we should grow tired of hearing. I read an article recently about a Christian man whose son was miraculously cured of a disease. It's one of those stories that the doctors had no explanation for. Now, I know not every story ends like that. In fact, I'm all too familiar with that. But it's powerful and encouraging to read how God had worked in that way with that family. But as I reflected on that story this week in light of this passage, the thing I found myself thinking about is this. I bet that that's not the first time that dad has shared the story. I mean, how could it be? Right? If God miraculously healed your son, that's not something you keep silent about. That's not something you say, well, I don't know if anyone would be interested in this. I'll just not share. Oh, no, that's something you would share far and wide. That's a story you would share every chance you get. That's a story you would delight in and regularly reflect on. That's a story that you would point to and say, look at what God has done. But hear this. The Christmas story is better than even the most miraculous healing story there is. Because when Jesus took on flesh, he didn't just come to momentarily heal us, only for us to die later on, which is the case with that man's son, right? He was healed, but eventually he'll die. No, in the Christmas story, Jesus came to take the penalty for our sin, that we might have everlasting life, and that one day we would experience the joy of being, him, being with him forever with bodies that are no longer broken. That's good news. And how could we not share that good news far and wide? And how could we not delight in that news every day? Listen, one of the reasons I still worship God despite the difficulties of this world and despite the fact that God doesn't always fix things is because I know that one day he will fix things. And I know that to be true because Jesus took on flesh. And he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of God, and he will come again, and he will make things right. And that means that we should rejoice in the Christmas story. Listen, if dads can rejoice in their son's earthly healings that happened decades ago, which was the case with this article, or if Husker fans can delight in national championships from a quarter century ago, By the way, that's not a dig. My team's never won a championship. You should delight as much as you want to. But my point is simply this. If we can delight in things like that that happened long ago, how in the world can we lose our wonder at the Christmas story? How in the world can we hear this and think, ah, that's not interesting? No, Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord. He took on flesh. He entered into this world. He was born in a feeding trough to rescue you from your sin. If we get bored with that story, the problem is not with the story. The problem is with us. So why is the good news good news? The good news is good news because of the substance. And the substance is a person. It's Jesus. 
Jesus is Savior, Lord, and Christ. He took on flesh on our behalf. But it's not just the substance of the good news that makes the good news good news. Secondly, I think we see this. The good news is also good news because of the scope of the news. So the substance and now the scope. Think about it this way. If I found out this week that all of the residents of Scott's Bluff were entitled to free groceries for a year, or every person in Grand Island was getting $5,000 put in their bank account by some wealthy beneficiary, I would be happy for the people of Scott's Bluff and Grand Island, but it'd be hard to get really excited because the scope of the news is so limited. It's just for those two places. In the same way, if the birth of Christ only had ramifications for Israelites or for the religiously powerful and connected, it would still be good news for those people, I suppose. But it's the scope of the good news that makes the good news really good news. And by scope, I mean this. The birth of Jesus Christ is good news for all people everywhere. And there are a couple of things in this passage that hint at that reality. One of those things is the presence of the shepherds. I want to go back to verses 8 and 9 here. Verse 8 says this. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, some have suggested that shepherds were actually despised at the time of Jesus' birth. I don't think that came until a couple of centuries later. Eventually, it got to the point where shepherds' testimony wasn't trusted in court. But at the time of Jesus' birth, shepherds weren't so much despised as they were just forgotten. They were lowly, working-class, humble people. They were not influential, nor were they culturally relevant. Most of the time, they were probably dirty, and most of the time, they probably smelled really bad. And even in this story, they're keeping watch over their flocks by night, which is not exactly glamorous work. Fending off thieves and wild animals in the middle of the night, that may sound fun in theory until you actually do it. The reality is that being a shepherd was hard and dirty and smelly and scary work. And yet God chooses to reveal the birth of his son to the shepherds. Why? I would suggest that it's actually part of a larger pattern of how God works. He doesn't typically use the powerful and the rich and the mighty, although sometimes in Scripture he does. Usually, though, as 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us, he uses the weak and the despised and the irrelevant. The lowly people of the world, the shepherds. The shepherds' presence in this story then reminds us, no matter your lot in life, God can use you. And the gospel is good news for you. There's actually a second thing in this story that pushes us in that same direction. It's found in the angel's announcement of verse 10. Listen again to what the angel says in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All the people. Now it's possible that in this context, the angel is referring to all the people of Israel. That the good news is for all the Israelites. And even if that is the case... I still think that the angel would be speaking to the scope of the news and that it's for all people of Israel, not just the religiously connected or not just the powerful or the wealthy. But that said, given what we know from the rest of the New Testament and in particular what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts and even all the way into Revelation and everywhere in between, we know this. The good news of Jesus Christ is indeed good news for all people, not just Israelites, but Gentiles too. Or maybe to say it more broadly, the birth of Jesus Christ is good news for people of all races, all nations, all backgrounds, all cultures, all occupations, all educations, and all ages. Or to say it more simply, it's good news for all people everywhere. 
Now, to be sure, the benefits of the good news only belong to those who trusted in Christ. But the offer of the gospel is made freely to all people everywhere. And in that way, the birth of Jesus Christ is good news for all people everywhere, including you. Listen, I don't know your story is. I know some of you better than others, but I don't know anyone's story exhaustively in here. I don't know what type of family you came from exactly. I don't know what skeletons you have in your closet. I don't know what sinful things you've done in the past or what sinful practices you're engaged in currently. I don't know what tragedies you've had to endure. I don't know what your life looks like currently, but here's what I do know. Regardless of your background, regardless of your past choices, regardless of your current sin, if you will run to Jesus Christ in saving faith, if you will come to him with a sincere desire to follow him, he is waiting with open arms. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for all people everywhere, including you. Listen, I know in every culture throughout history, there's been a battle between the haves and the have-nots, between the wealthy and the poor, the influential and the marginalized. And we certainly see that battle on display in our culture today. But hear this, the birth of Jesus Christ is not just good news for the elite, the wealthy, the educated, and the powerful. For that matter, it's not just good news for the lowly, the poor, or the marginalized either. It's good news for all people everywhere. The scope of the message is as broad as it gets. Anyone who comes to him in saving faith, anyone who trusts in him will find forgiveness. And what that means is you are not too far gone. Maybe you've thought to yourself before, God could never forgive me. Given the things I've done, I could never be rescued. And the reality is that's just not true. If you come to him in humble faith, he is waiting. And that way, the good news is good news for all people. That's why we'd say one of the reasons why the good news is good news is because of the scope of the news. Christ's birth is good news for all people everywhere. But lastly, I think we can say this. The good news is good news because of the effect of the news. So the substance, the scope, and then the effect. Look first at verse 10 one more time. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So the good news is good news because it brings joy. But it's actually a second thing I want us to focus on in terms of the effect of the news, and that's peace. And we see that in the angel's song of verse 14. Verse 14, the angels sing, and they say this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Now, when I look at the world around me, I have to say this, I don't see a lot of peace. Instead, I see conflict. Conflict between individuals, conflict between the government and the people, conflict between political parties, conflicts between nations. You don't have to look far to find this conflict, by the way. All you have to do is turn on the news, and about 60 seconds in, you'll be like, yeah, we're not at peace. And more than just conflict between people, it seems that most people are not internally at peace either. Inwardly, they struggle. Most people, if you dig deep enough, are anxious or worried or self-conscious or defensive or insecure. There are very few people who would be characterized as at peace. And perhaps that's why the angel's song here in verse 14 is so powerful and yet so haunting. Because the angels are describing something that seems so elusive. Glory to God in the highest and peace among those with whom he's pleased. Now as the language of verse 14 would suggest, God's peace only comes to those who are in right relationship with him. 
those that he is pleased with, those who are chosen by him and saved by grace, those who are part of his family, these are the ones that experience peace. These that are not a part of his family, those that have not trusted in Christ, those that he's not pleased with in that sense, they do not experience this peace. But those who are part of the family do. And in a world that lacks peace, that's significant. Now to clarify, I think the peace we're talking about here is multifaceted. On the one hand, those who are in Christ have peace with God and that we're now no longer cut off from God. Christ's substitutionary work on the cross made it possible for us to no longer be at odds with him. And so if you're in Christ, that's your lot. You are no longer enmity with God. Instead, you have peace with God. But there's another facet to the peace that's being described here. And I think that's a peace that comes from God. A peace that comes from God. A peace that comes from resting in his sovereign plan. A peace that comes from trusting his good character. As Isaiah 26 describes this peace. God keeps in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in him. Philippians 4 informs us this. When we cast all of our anxieties on him, the perfect peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And I have to say, those two verses have taken on more of a meaning for me even this week. So I've debated what to do here. <clears throat> Sometimes I don't know how much to talk about our personal life. And particularly, I don't know how much to talk about our son's health issues. I don't want our trials to be the focus of sermons, and I don't want everything to run through the filter of our hospital experiences. But at the same time, it's our life right now. And it's hard for me to be able to articulate how the gospel is impacting me which I think is important for you to be able to hear, that this is not just a message for you, it's a message for me. It's hard for me to be able to articulate how messages like this impact me without sharing bits and pieces of that story, particularly after a week like this one. So with some hesitation and internal conflict, I'm going to share with you what I'm going to share, and I'm praying that it's applicable and relevant. And if it's not, I just pray you forgive me. As those of you who are on our church prayer list, our family has spent a majority of the week in the hospital with our son Dawson. Unfortunately, Dawson's disease took a turn for the worse this week, and it's been pretty terrible. Now, he got out of the hospital last night, praise God, but we still have more questions than answers and more problems than solutions. He's been battling his disease for two and a half years, but this week has been one of the worst. And I'm not going to lie to you and stand up here and say, oh, it's been easy. Oh, we just made it. We just trusted God. Everything's been perfect. That's not the case at all. And I don't want to make it sound either like Tony and I were just sitting around the hospital singing hymns all day and handing out gospel tracts. That wouldn't be true either. A lot of the week we were just crying, and most of the time we just felt tired. But I'll say this, in the midst of all that, at no point did I think we're losing our minds. At no point did I think, let's jump out the hospital window. At no point did we decide, let's yell at doctors for asking crazy questions, because sometimes they ask crazy questions. You know, in the midst of that, I can say with full sincerity, we still believe that God is good. We still believe that God's in control, and we still believe he's faithful to keep his promises. And in that way, I can say this earnestly, God has kept us at peace. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say it's been a perfect peace. That Isaiah 26 perfect peace, I don't know if we're there yet. I'm also not going to pretend it's been a peace without turmoil, or without questions, or without tears, or frustration. But it has been a peace that's persisted in the worst of times. A trust that God is doing something we can't see. And let me be clear in saying this. The fact that we've had that peace is a work of God. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit. And I also want to be clear in saying this. This is not something unique to us. One of the things that I love about being a part of this church is that we've seen so many of you walk through trials, 
walk through more difficult trials than we're even facing, and to do so with a trust in God and a peace that's unexplainable, that it has been so encouraging to us. In fact, one of the reasons why I think we've been able to endure is because we've seen so many of you do the same thing, trust in God in the midst of trials. And so let me be clear in saying this is not something unique to us. It's something I've seen with so many of you in this church body, and I'm grateful to God for it. Because to be clear, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. And it's only possible because of the birth of Christ. In fact, that's what I think Luke 2.14 is saying. That we have peace with God, but we also have peace that comes from God. That's part of what makes the good news good news. The good news of Christ doesn't just affect us academically and that we learn facts about Jesus. Oh, we learn, oh, we Savior Christ and Lord, cool. No, it affects us to the very core of who we are. It gives us joy and peace even when there shouldn't be joy and peace. And that's why I can tell you earnestly this morning that even though I don't know what this Christmas will be like for our family, I know that the Christmas story is still good news because it still affects us in tangible and beautiful ways. Because of Christ's birth, there's hope even in the ashes. So listen, I know it's easy to take this good news for granted. Every person who owns a phone or uses indoor plumbing can attest to the reality that we just take stuff for granted. But what I don't want us to lose sight of this Christmas is the good news of the Christmas story. I want us to remember why the good news is good news. It's good news because of its substance. Jesus is Christ, Lord and Savior. It's good news because of its scope. The Christmas story is good news for all people everywhere. And it's good news because of its effects. The Christmas story brings peace and joy even in the darkest cave. So church, let's remember all of that this Christmas season. Let's remember why the good news is good news. And then let's proclaim that good news far and wide. Would you pray? Yeah, we thank you. We thank you for the good news. It is good news. In the midst of the troubles of life, the difficulties of this world, I'm struck this morning by how good this news is. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That he entered in this world and took on flesh so that we could be right with you. And Lord, that good news has deep effects on us. It brings peace and joy, even in the darkest times. Help us now to celebrate that. Help us to celebrate your birth. As we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper, help us to celebrate your death and resurrection. We know that all of it's a part of the same story, and because of all of it, we have hope. So please, Lord, help us this morning to remember why the good news is good news. As we turn our attention to the Lord's table, help us to celebrate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we take the Lord's Supper together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.